Uh, our lecture tonight on the 20th century crisis is going to be somewhat different in format in that we'll be starting directly with a piece of music on film. And as usual, any of you who would like to follow the score at the desk are welcome to come and join me.
What a way to enter the 20th century. Blazing with self-confidence, back there in 1908, this Spanish rhapsody of Ravel's is totally unaware, or at least unconcerned, that a crisis lurks just around the corner, a life and death crisis in musical semantics. But this music has no worries about the future. It's immensely pleased with itself. It has a childlike faith that the tonality on which it feeds is infinite, that tonality is immortal as long as it is continuously refreshed and enriched by bigger and better ambiguities, both phonological and syntactic ones, chromatic and metrical ones, as you've heard. They're all there in that music, all those elusive and seductive either-ors that we found last time in Berlioz and in Wagner and Debussy. They're all there and then some. But all that wandering chromaticism we've been listening to is still contained in a tonal framework. And Ravel is telling us, through his music, that he sees no reason why it can't go on forever similarly controlled and contained to the end of recorded time. In other words, we're safe. It's only 1908, and there's still Rosenkavalier to be written, and a few more Puccini operas, and the Firebird, and who knows how many other similar delights. Life is nothing but a joy. But 1908, if the truth be told, is not just a bowl of cherries. Far from it. There's something else in the air, a disturbance, a prescient feeling that all this smug optimism can't last. Neither tonality, nor figurative painting, nor syntactical poetry, nor indeed the seemingly endless growth of the bourgeoisie, or of colonial wealth, or of imperial power. Sensitive minds are beginning to hint at a social collapse, a monstrous world war. A premature flicker of fascism is already perceptible. Marinetti's famous manifesto of futurism is about to appear, glorifying war, the machine, speed, danger, and calling for the destruction of the past with all its traditions, including music. At the same time, on the other side of the musical moon, Mahler is writing his Ninth Symphony, agonizing over his reluctant and protracted farewell to tonality. Even Scriabin, in his Prometheus, is waging a losing battle to contain his own mystic chromaticisms. And even Sibelius is writing a fourth symphony filled with unresolved doubts and terrors. And these troubling presentiments are particularly intense in and around Vienna. The decadence and hypocrisy of this overwaltzed Austro-Hungarian empire are seen by the Viennese polemicist Karl Kraus. Uh, I don't know if you know that name, but it's a very important name. You should know it. Seen by Karl Kraus as glaringly reflected in the degeneration of language and are cruelly exposed in the harsh light of his critical writings. If you don't know the name Karl Kraus, look him up. He's a key figure in this first decade of the century. And he knows what's coming. Mahler knows, too. But he's about to die, along with his beloved 
tonal music. And there's a new composer, still in his 30s, who also knows, but who will live to do something about it. And his name is Arnold Schoenberg, who has already written a masterly work, Verklärte Nacht, in which he has stretched those Wagnerian tonal ambiguities we found last week to the snapping point. The problems presented by Tristan and Isolde have now grown to a point necessitating some radical solution. The works have become not only chromatically unmanageable, but unwieldy as well in sheer size. Like the dinosaur, they've simply grown too big. Composers like Reger and Fitzner are vying with each other for some kind of Oscar to be awarded for the longest, thickest, and most complex piece in the world. And Schoenberg, too, made his bid with an early super-Wagnerian monster work called Gurelieder. They were all, including Mahler, swept along by that mighty wave of the future that Wagner, in his hyper-romantic egomania, had predicted and initiated. But how big can you get? How chromatically ambiguous, how syntactically overstuffed without collapsing of your own sheer weight, like the dinosaur? There were just too many notes, too many inner voices, too many meanings, and this was what caused the crisis in ambiguity. So now in 1908, Schoenberg is already giving up the struggle to preserve tonality, to contain those post-Wagnerian chromaticisms. In this very year of 1908, he is writing a second string quartet that clearly announces the upheaval and his renunciation of tonality. In the last movement of this quartet, he resorts to the human voice, a soprano, who sings Stefan Georg's prophetic words, Ich fühle Luft von anderem Planeten. I feel air from another planet. And it sounds like this. And then she sings, Ich fühle Luft von anderem Planeten. Indeed, Schoenberg does feel that air, and we feel it too. This Opus 10 is to be his last tonal piece for many years to come. By Opus 11, we're already breathing that new air. Listen. This is atonality, to use that awful and 
frequently misunderstood word, not the atonality of Debussy's whole tone role, whole tone scale that we studied last week, which was always, if you remember, tonally contained. This atonality is not contained, either diatonically or in any other way. For better or worse, non-tonal music has been born. And the history of music has suffered a sea change. And in that same year of 1908, but far away from all this, an ocean and a continent away, in fact, in Connecticut, of all places, the sharpest comment and the most trenchant description of the tonal crisis was made by an unheard, unhonored, and unsung Sunday composer named Charles Ives, who also knew, though totally unaware of Schoenberg or any of that upheaval, he knew something was up, and he proclaimed it in his half-playful, mystic, quirky way through a marvelous little piece called The Unanswered Question. And this music says it all better than a thousand words. And for this reason, I'd like you to hear it and also to see it, to see this almost graphic representation of the conflict. <laughs> of course, the question Ives proposes in his title is not a strictly musical one by his own say-so, but rather a metaphysical one. Let me quote part of his descriptive foreword to the piece. He says, the strings play pianissimo throughout with no change in tempo. And they are to represent, quote, the silences of the druids who know, see, and hear nothing, unquote. The trumpet intones the perennial question of existence, unquote, and states it in the same tone of voice each time. But the hunt for the invisible answer, unquote, all these are capitalized, naturally, the hunt for the invisible answer undertaken by the flutes and other human beings, typical Ives cracker barrel humor, uh, these flutes and other human beings become gradually more active, faster, and louder. And these fighting answerers, as time goes on, seem to realize a futility and begin to mock the question. The strife is over for the moment. After they disappear, the question, quotes, is asked for the last time, and the silences, quotes, are heard beyond in undisturbed solitude, unquote, unquote. A charming idea, naive and profound at once. But I've always thought of Ives' unanswered question as not a metaphysical one so much as a strictly musical question. Wither music in our century. Let me reinterpret the piece in exclusively musical terms. There are three orchestral elements involved. The string ensemble, a solo trumpet, and a woodwind quartet. The strings do indeed play pianissimo throughout with no changes in tempo, as Ives says. But more important than anything about druids, they are playing pure tonal triads.
against this slow, sustained, purely diatonic background, the trumpet intermittently poses his question, a vague, non-tonal phrase. time it is answered by the wind group in an equally vague amorphous way the same, but the answers grow more and more ambiguous and hectic until the final answer emerges as utter gibberish. Throughout it all, those strings have maintained their diatonic serenity, imperturbable. And when the trumpet asks his question for the last time, whither music, there is no further answer except for those strings quietly prolonging their pure G major triad into eternity.
Is that luminous final triad the answer? Is tonality eternal, immortal? Many have thought so, and some still do. And yet that trumpet's question hangs in the air, unresolved, troubling our calm. Do you see how clearly this piece spells out the dilemma of the new century? The dichotomy that was to define the shape of musical life from then to now. On the one hand, tonality and syntactic clarity. On the other, atonality and syntactic confusion. As simple as that, apparently, but not quite so simple as we shall see. Tonal composers are going to be tempted into flirting with non-tonality and vice versa. And to cloud matters further, all 20th century composers, however split they are, write what they write out of the same need for newer and greater semantic richness. They are all, whether tonal or non-tonal, motivated by the same drive, the power of expressivity, the drive to expand music's metaphorical speech, even if they do so in diametrically opposite ways and split music apart. And so we can see this 20th century split as having a common impetus, the way a great river divides into two forks. On the one hand, there are tonal composers guided by Igor Stravinsky, who were seeking to extend musical ambiguities as far as possible by constant transformations, but always somehow remaining within the confines of the tonal system. While on the other hand, non-tonal composers led by Schoenberg were seeking their new metaphorical speech through one huge convulsive transformation, namely transforming the entire tonal system into a new and different poetic language. But these two apparently hostile camps, with all their antagonisms and disputes about which side really represented modern music, actually shared the same motivation, increased expressive power. I have uh, recently been reading a fascinating, nasty, turgid book called The Philosophy of Modern Music by the German sociologist and aesthetician Theodor Adorno. It's curious that a book with this title, The Philosophy of Modern Music, should turn out to be a double essay on precisely Schoenberg and Stravinsky, thus reducing modern music to that specific dichotomy. Now, of course, the book is loaded. Schoenberg is all truth and beauty, while Stravinsky is everything evil. But Adorno confirms what I've been saying by pointing out in his Hegelian way that the big split is to be conceived dialectically, or to use his language, as logical antinomies of the same cultural crisis. Well, to use simpler language, both Stravinsky and Schoenberg were after the same thing in different ways. Stravinsky tried to keep musical progress on the move by driving tonal and structural ambiguities on and on to a point of no return, as we will see next week. Schoenberg, foreseeing this point of no return and taking his cue from the expressionistic movement in the other arts, initiated a clean, total break with tonality altogether, as well as with syntactic structures based on symmetry. It's interesting to note that Schoenberg was also a talented painter. This is his self-portrait, uh, one of his self-portraits. And in those early years of the 20th century, 
He was making the same kinds of experiments on canvas as he was making on music paper. Actually, this uh, particular portrait isn't half so expressionistic as, as, and Kokoschka-ish as he got a year or two later, but it's the only slide I could find for the occasion. Still, it, it does tell you what I mean, doesn't it? Uh, now, we've already referred to some of those early musical experiments in Opus 10 and 11, where the break was made and free atonality came to be. But the clincher was Opus 21, that wild and spine-chilling masterpiece of Expressionism called Pierrot Lunaire. This is a cycle of 21 weird poems by Albert Giraud, thrice seven poems, as they're called, set in German for voice and a small group of instruments. And in the course of it, Schoenberg not only goes over the cliff tonally, but introduces a new ambiguous wrinkle, which he called Sprechstimme, Sprechstimme, whereby the singer doesn't exactly sing. That is, each vocal note is clearly indicated, but the singer, having once attacked that note, must immediately let it fall or rise, as in speaking, producing something halfway between singing and speaking. And this is indicated, as you can see, by those crosses on each note of the vocal line. I hope you can see them on the note stems. In other words, if you can remember way back four lectures ago to our discussion of heightened speech, the ictus of a syllable, such as ma, is not prolonged into a note, ma, but allowed to glide away, like ma or ma. And this naturally strikes yet another blow at tonality and lends a new spookiness to the music. For instance, one of the songs is entitled Der Kranke Mond, The Sick Moon. It's written for voice and flute only and begins like this. Strange, it begins like Tristan, you notice. Du nächtig todeskranker Mond Dort auf des Himmels schwarzem Dein Blick so fiebernd, übergroß, band mich wie fremde Melodie. I wouldn't dare try that in public if it were not for the fact that my naturally out-of-tune voice lends itself to <laughs> Sprechstimme. <clears throat> when I sing normal music, it comes out of Sprechstimme. In any case, it was uh, soon to become clear that free atonality was in itself a point of no return. It seemed to fulfill the conditions for musical progress. It seemed to continue the line of romantic expressivity in a subjective way from Wagner and Brahms through Bruckner and Mahler. The expressionism seemed logical, the atonality inevitable. But then, a dead end. Where did one go from here? 
having abandoned all the rules. For one thing, the lack of constraints and the resulting ungoverned freedom produced a music that was extremely difficult for the listener to follow in either form or content. And this remained true in spite of all the brilliant and profuse inner structures to be found in this piece, canonic procedures and inverted phrases, retrogrades, and all the rest. And secondly, it was not easy for the composer to maintain his atonality because of that innate tonal drive we all share universally. And this was particularly true of Schoenberg, who was so gifted with his own innate musicality. Even the last song of Pierrot Lunaire yields to old triadic harmony when Pierrot, or Schoenberg, if you will, sings, O alter duft aus Märchenzeit, old fragrance from once upon a time. And at that moment, it sounds like this. Alter Duft aus Märchenzeit. Now that is a really touching moment, that yearning for the universal. It's a moment that could have been Mahler. Now, for all these reasons, some new system had to be found, a new system for controlling the amorphousness of free-floating atonality. And so Schoenberg gradually evolved his famous serial method, gradually. Already before this, in his Opus 19, which is a set of piano pieces, he was already veering toward a concept of the 12 chromatic tones, whereby they are all used constantly, but with no particular tonal relationship to one another. You understand what I mean? It's like the first piece of this set, which begins like this. Now, in the course of those two bars, all 12 tones are indeed employed, but there's still a ghost of tonality hanging over them. See, the chromaticism is still just barely, but still contained. Listen to the melody alone. Perfectly tonal. In fact, it outlines a B major triad. Right? With this one, not very startling, appoggiatura, which resolves as conventionally as in Mozart or Mahler. In fact, it sounds rather like Till Eulenspiegel, doesn't it? And as it continues, the chromatic wandering is not very different from the Berlioz, Romeo, and Juliet music we heard last week. It still suggests B major, right? Where the difference lies is in the accompaniment, which has nothing at all to do with B major. Listen how it goes on. What is resonating in that phrase? Do you remember Tristan?
And now listen to Schoenberg. Son of Tristan. Or is it Tristan rides again? I think maybe Tristan's revenge. But whichever it is, there is still no escaping the past. The need for a control system is pressingly clear. You see that. And so, by the early 1920s, Schoenberg had arrived at a 12-tone system which guaranteed or your money back that you would never slip into old tonal habits. No more B major, no more Tristan. And more important, that any piece you wrote could be consistent could make sense formally and stylistically from beginning to end. In other words, aesthetic order had been restored. And here's the big example, another piano piece, but a crucial one, from 1923, and coincidentally, Opus 23. This happens very frequently in the course of Schoenberg's writing, that is, Opus numbers correspond to the year in which they're written. <clears throat> so here we have Opus 23, written in 1923, in which all 12 tones are presented in a pre-established order or series with no single tone repeated until all other 11 have been sounded. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Now, this is the ground rule of the whole system. It's vastly oversimplified, naturally, but we haven't got uh, all night to, or all week, to <laughs> teach you the 12-tone system. But that is the basic ground rule, which serves to give each of the 12 tones its equal rights. It's like establishing a pure democracy among them. Now, of course, the piece doesn't begin with a naked presentation of that 12-tone set, or row, as it's called. Tone row, that's the usual term. Any more than the Moonlight Sonata begins with the presentation of the C-sharp minor scale. The first thing actually heard in the piece is a transformation of the row, with certain of its notes combined into chords and others used as melody. In other words, a surface structure has been evolved. Now you look at those first two bars and you can see that all the 12 tones are present. Now once this row has been presented in its first transformational form, it's immediately heard again, but in a new order. That is, the series has now undergone a permutation. Now, these permutations of the row continue in always new ways, in new melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic combinations, which we might well call, in our now familiar linguistic terms, transformations of transformations. It's a kind of perpetual variation, or metamorphosis. And all of this, through Schoenberg's inventive genius, becomes a piece with the unexpectedly simple title of Waltz. And it goes like this, as you know. Mm -hmm. 
and so on. Now this history-making little waltz may not sound so very different to you in its non-tonal style from the earlier examples I played you of free atonality. But there's all the difference in the world. This piece is strictly controlled by its consistent adherence to the original set of 12 tones. Oops, sorry, missed that one. In a sense, that tone row performs something like the function of a scale in tonal music. That is, to provide a basic source of underlying strings, as the linguists would say, evolving into a deep structure of musical prose, so to speak, out of which this ultimate surface structure arises. Now, of course, there are lots of other rules of serial music which have a similar goal of democratizing the 12 tones. For instance, the extreme top or bottom note of a melodic line automatically acquires extra importance because of its position, right? And that's not democratic. Likewise, a note that lasts longer than its neighbors will seem more important owing to its extra duration. And so there are compensatory rules that require the extreme highs or lows of a line to be of especially short duration, which prevents them from getting too much attention. And conversely, long-lasting notes must never be at the very top or the very bottom. These rules, you have to understand, are not rigid. They are suggested rules, and Schoenberg always made these rules only to be broken. He was the first one to break them himself, and he was the first one to tell his composition students don't compose in my method, learn my method, and then just compose. All great men are their own rule breakers, from Plato through Stravinsky, through Nietzsche, and everybody else. So, to the extent that the row does provide certain functions analogous to those of a scale in the tonal system, this 12-tone or dodecaphonic method is indeed a viable replacement for tonal composition. And it was such a welcome gift to the crisis-ridden 20th century composer that it took instant stronghold, capturing the imagination of such composers as Alban Berg and Anton von Webern, both ardent Schoenberg disciples, and persisting to this very day with evolutionary modifications, of course, in the music of Stockhausen, Boulez, Warrenin, Kirchner, Babbitt, Foss, Berio, and sometimes me though very rarely. Uh, it's as though a new covenant had been formed, replacing the old one of tonality. Think of that. If we think of tonality as a kind of grammatical covenant or agreement that there will be sentences in speech, then certain rules have to be obeyed. Only recall Alice's bemused sentence, do cats eat bats? Remember Alice in Wonderland? Now that's a puzzled but valid sentence. And then she wonders immediately after, do bats eat cats? Now, it's a semantic change, but it's still grammatically valid, right? But if we invert the sentence by reversing its order, we get bats eat, cats do, which is meaningless and chaotic. It's as though we took the opening phrase of the Blue Danube Waltz right, and inverted it into this. It's weak, though it's still acceptable. It's, uh, it's just lousy. You know? Maybe we could even call it a metaphor and get away with it.
But if we invert the second phrase, we're in chaos. It's cats and bats again. Now, of course, that last phrase is conceivable as what used to be called crazy modern music. Just as eat, do, cats, bats is conceivable as a line of crazy modern poetry. But in both cases, there is an obvious crisis in syntax. A new system of controls is clearly needed. A new covenant that will guarantee order. Trouble is that the new musical rules of Schoenberg are not based on innate awareness, on the intuition of tonal relationships. They're like rules of an artificial language, though hopefully a universal language. And so all such rules must be deliberately learned. And this would seem to lead to what used to be called form without content in the field of aesthetics, or form at the expense of content, structuralism for its own sake. And that's exactly what Schoenberg is accused of, for example, in the Soviet Union. Formalism, they call it there. And it's strictly forbidden to the Soviet composer. But we know that Schoenberg never meant anything of the kind. He was just too musical to hold such an attitude, too much of a music lover. And no matter how much emphasis he placed on logical structure, that structure is still derived from the same 12 tones of the harmonic series, a universal we all share. And this fact alone would account for Schoenberg's constant reversions to tonality, whether overt or implied, as well as his reversion to traditional syntactic structures. Uh, even in the same Opus 23 waltz we were just hearing, where the serial system is being displayed for the first time in history, we find a passage such as this with a perfectly symmetrical sequence. Listen to this. Now that's three bars, which is then repeated in exact sequence. Exact sequence. And not only is that passage symmetrical, but there hangs over it a strong feeling of tonality. Do you sense that tonal quality, those perfect fifths in the melodic line? And then, and do you sense the dominant feeling in the accompaniment? Hear that? And the next bar? That dominant quality? And this kind of tonal feeling haunted Schoenberg's music and still haunts it right up to the end of his life. Even his third quartet, Opus 30, which is a highly serial work, opens with repeated four bar phrase groups that aren't really very far from the procedures of Mozart. See if I can play this. Uh, you need four hands to play a quartet, but anyway. Mm -hmm. oh, I knew I'd ruin it. But anyway, do you get the idea of the four-bar symmetrical structures, then repeated making eight bars? And it's even tonal sounding. Repeated eight times. It's almost as though you had E minor and the dominant of E minor. 
Of course, that's ruining the music, but I'm, I'm just trying to show you the implications of tonality that are so strong. Eight times in a row. And even in Opus 31, the orchestral variations, a work rarely played because of its difficulty for performers and listeners alike, even here, we find sequences such as this. What could be more symmetrical? And that's symmetrical both tonally and structurally. Left hand, right hand, clear as day. And such examples abound throughout the corpus of Schoenberg's work. In fact, as late as 1944, in the last decade of his life, he wrote an entire work in G minor, key signature and all. Would you believe that this is by the same composer whose dodecaphonic system we've been discussing? There's a famous quote from Schoenberg in which he says, a longing to return to the older style was always vigorous in me, and from time to time I had to yield to that urge. He then went on to say that uh, that's why <laughs> he had written so much tonal music, even late in life, and then dismissed the whole problem by saying uh, that these stylistic differences, as he called them, aren't really very important. Imagine, after having spent most of his life tearing the world apart, turning everything up on its ears by denying tonality, then to come out and say, well, that's what I mean by the great thinkers of the world. They are always contradicting themselves. Of course, there are those who say that Schoenberg wrote this tonal piece out of desperation to have his music publicly performed. And indeed, this theme and variations in G minor was given its premiere performance by the Boston Symphony under Kusevitsky, who rarely, if ever, played 12-tone music by Schoenberg or anyone else. If the story is true, then it's a heartbreaking story, because far from connoting anything deprecatory or anything to impugn Schoenberg's integrity, it rather illustrates the pitiful situation of an unplayed master, 70 years old, at that time, most of whose major works were yet to be performed by most of our major orchestras. And that includes the great violin concerto, the piano concerto, and the five pieces for orchestra, which may well be his orchestral masterpiece, to say nothing of Opus 31 variations. But in whatever sense that story is true, it cannot detract from the evident truth of Schoenberg's continuing rocky romance with tonality, right up to his death in 1951. How else can we account for his orchestral transcriptions of Bach and Handel, and even Brahms' G minor piano quartet, which he also made late in his life, in fact, later than that other G minor piece we were just playing. You see, he loved music with such passion that the magnetic pull of tonality could never lose its hold on him, never quite, and it conditioned his own music to a smaller or greater extent, even through the whole revolutionary development of his 12-tone method. And it seems somehow inevitable that the sense of tonality haunts his most beautiful works. Even when it's not demonstrably present, it still haunts those works 
by its conspicuous absence, if you can follow me. Does that sound paradoxical? It isn't at all when you realize that the 12 tones employed by Schoenberg are the same old 12 tones employed by everybody else, derived in the same way from the same natural harmonic series. They are the same 12 well-tempered tones of Bach, only their universal hierarchy has been destroyed, or at least an attempt has been made to destroy it. And Schoenberg himself was the first to recognize this all-important truth, and indeed the first to renounce the word atonality entirely, even to deny the possibility of atonality. Another paradox? Not at all. He knew, and we too must learn from him, that if ever a true atonality is to be achieved, some uniquely different basis for it must be found. The rules of the 12-tone method may be non-universal and even arbitrary, but not arbitrary enough to destroy the inherent tonal relationships among those 12 tones. Perhaps a real atonality can be achieved only artificially through electronic means, perhaps, through a really arbitrary division of the octave space into something other than the 12 equidistant intervals of our chromatic scale. Let's say 13 equidistant intervals, or 30, or 313, but not 12, not the 12 tones of Bach and Beethoven and Wagner. With those 12 universals, neither Schoenberg, nor Berg, nor Weber, nor anyone could ever escape the nostalgic yearning for the deep structures implied by these notes, inherent in these notes. It's that alter duft aus Märchenzeit again. And it's precisely this nostalgic yearning quality that so often makes their music beautiful and moving. Well, is there possibly the beginning of a clue here to the unanswered question? How does the wild thought strike you that all music is ultimately and basically tonal, even when it's non-tonal. Does this hypothetical notion touch off some innate response in you? I know it does in me. So it gives me the same sort of electric charge I always feel when any two facts intersect and spark an idea. And the two facts here are the two givens of one series intersecting another, the harmonic series and any given tone row series. And while we're on this subject of serial intersections, let's take a moment to remind ourselves that serial phenomena have been around for a long time, as far back, let's say, as the 13th century in the use of cantus firmus, and even including some significant stabs at actual tone rows by, would you believe it, Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Here, for example, is the subject of Bach's F minor fugue from the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavichord. Now, that extraordinarily chromatic subject encompasses nine out of the 12 chromatic tones. That's three quarters of all the notes we possess. And there's only one repetition in it. The first note, that one. All the others are different. But what's even more extraordinary is that in the course of the immediately ensuing fugal answer, 
Bach automatically picks up the three remaining tones. So that within these few bars, all 12 tones are present and accounted for. It's not a Schoenberg row, but it's remarkably close. And what about this spooky passage from Mozart's Don Giovanni? But all 12 notes are in there, all 12 of them, clear as day, although the effect is very nocturnal. And in fact, in my voice, it's something of a nightmare. <laughs> and, and what about Beethoven's Ninth, that sudden awestruck moment in the finale of recognizing the divine presence? Fantastic, that passage. And again, it's not Schoenberg, and admittedly, it presents only 11 notes out of the possible 12, but it is a row in the sense that for that brief duration, Beethoven suspends all tonal harmony, leaving only harmonic implications. That's what makes it so suddenly awesome, unrooted in earth, extraterrestrial. So that when earthly harmony does return, that incandescent A major triad does indeed cry, universal brothers, all emerging together from that non-earthly, divinity. I've strayed from Schoenberg, but not without intention. For in going back to Bach and Beethoven, we've had revealed to us a striking new ambiguity, which I was only suggesting earlier through the image of intersecting currents. Perhaps you can sense more strongly now what I meant by all music being tonal even when it isn't. These early attempts at tone rows we've been hearing are clearly attempts to transcend tonality, to evoke mystery by momentarily denying or ignoring the universal roots of harmony which are born in the harmonic series. And this sudden rootlessness, however brief, in every case suggests the mystic, the unearthly, something unrooted in earth, whether it's Mozart's ghostly stone guest, or Beethoven's evocation of the Godhead. What then happens to music when Schoenberg, for example, constructs a whole system based on that rootlessness? Does that system therefore make all his music and that of his followers unqualifiedly mystic, or only unqualifiedly intellectualized? What has happened to what Keats called the poetry of earth, which ceases never? Is Schoenberg an end or a beginning? These are some of the problems we'll be confronting in our next and final lecture. 
Right now what interests us is the fascinating ambiguity between the planned antitonal functions of the 12-tone row and the inevitable tonal harmonic implications that innately reside in it, do what you will. Of course, a composer may construct any row at his own pleasure, either to emphasize harmonic relationships or to de-emphasize them, even to try to erase them. But either way, the relationships remain, whether overt, as in Bach, where you, you hear them, actually, or whether they're implied, as in the Beethoven, where it's anybody's guess. And so there is always that resulting ambiguous tug of war between being rooted and being partly rooted. Rooted and partly rooted. But music can never be totally rootless as long as there are 12 equal tones in an octave. Not 13, 12. For example, one of the most famous pre-Schoenberg attempts at a 12-tone row, dating from the 1850s, if you could believe it, <coughs> is the opening theme of Franz Liszt's Faust Symphony. Uh, here, all 12 tones are immediately revealed Again, with no harmonic support and with no repetitions, a pure tone row and as mystic as you could wish. But it's so constructed that each group of three notes in itself spells out a chord. You see the first three notes? That spells out a chord, a so-called augmented triad so that the whole row winds up outlining four such chords. And four times three is 12. Now the harmonic implications in that row are so strong that obviously the whole piece is going to be filled with augmented triads as long as that row has anything to say about it. And indeed it is filled with them. <laughs> through all three movements. Now let's jump ahead 70 years to Schoenberg's crucial little waltz, that same Opus 23, which officially announced the row as a linear string. And what do we find? Listen. Harmonic implications galore, the most obvious of which is, curiously enough, that same augmented triad. In fact, as we examine the piece in terms of its groupings of the row, permutation by permutation, we find each new one clearly enunciating that augmented triad in one way or another, like the very beginning. Do you hear it? There it is, right away in the left hand. You can see it boxed on the screen. Here is it again, the next permutation. Those three notes which are boxed form the same augmented triad. And it goes on, and here it is again, boxed. And here it is again. You see what I mean? Over and over again, that triad. And now do you see what I mean by rootly, rooted and partly rooted? 
rejecting and embracing at the same time, denial and commitment. And this conflict was what engendered the most dramatic and most critical semantic ambiguity we have found so far in all of music. Is this perhaps why Schoenberg has still to this day not found his public, by which I mean a true mass public which loves his music? How many music lovers do you know who can say today in this 50th year of Opus 23 that they love to hear it, that they listen with love to it, as they might listen to Mahler or Stravinsky? Is it not perhaps that the ambiguity is simply too huge to be grasped, too self-negating to be perceived with our only human ears, ears which are, after all, tuned to our innate expectations in spite of all conditionings or reinforcements? Let's put it another way. Have we not finally stumbled on an ambiguity that cannot produce aesthetically positive results? Is there conceivably such a thing as a negative ambiguity? And why, people ask me constantly, why do we listen with real response, with innate affective response, to the music of Alban Berg, the most fervent of Schoenberg disciples and an equally committed 12-tone composer? Why does Berg succeed in producing a positive ambiguity out of the same tonal atonal contradiction? Is it only that Berg is so much more theatrical a composer than Schoenberg that we are overwhelmed by the sheer drama of an opera like Wozzeck? Many intelligent and fine critical minds have claimed this to be true, and to some degree it is true. I was planning to demonstrate this point by singing some of Marie's more dramatic moments in Wozzeck, but <clears throat> my voice ran out. And uh, besides, it's, even if it doesn't run out, it's just too ugly. I couldn't do it to a piece I love so much. As a matter of fact, a good performance of Wozzeck, which is not easy to come by, can be a shattering experience in the theater, musically and dramatically. But there's more to it than that. The fact is that Berg somehow found his own personal way to deal with that ultimate ambiguity of deep-rootedness and surface-rootedness rooted and partly rooted. So it's not only in his operatic works that he succeeded so remarkably where others haven't. His sense of drama, that deft and just balancing of these incompatible elements, tonal and non-tonal, carry over into all his compositions. For example, his very last composition, the incredibly beautiful violin concerto of 1935, solved that agonizing ambiguity, to be or not to be tonal, in an equally satisfying way, at least as equally as in Wozzeck. First of all, Berg chose a tone row for the whole work, which is filled with tonal implications. Just look and listen. Eleven, twelve. Now notice that the first nine notes of that row all proceed in intervals of the third. Mellifluous thirds, major and minor thirds. Moreover, these thirds are symmetrically arranged in chiasmus fashion, if you recall. Remember chiasmus? 
according to a pattern of A, B, B, A, that is minor, major, major, minor. Minor, major, major, minor. And what's more, the triads that are formed by these thirds automatically alternate minor, major, minor, major, thus ensuring all mellifluous possibilities. What's more, every other note of these nine form perfect fifths. And the first four of those fifths happen to correspond to the four open strings of the violin, a very handy tool to have around in a violin concerto. In fact, the first notes the violin plays in the concerto are these very open strings. And then, starting with that ninth tone of the row, which you can see, <laughs> we find that the last four notes present us with our old friend from last week, the tritone. Three whole steps. One, two, three, which if you remember, generated Debussy's whole tone scale. So, all in all, Berg has picked himself a row that has very strong roots in music's traditional past. And Berg adds to the strength of that traditional feeling with one device after another, a Bachian inversion and a Beethovenian fragmentation, a Schumannesque rhythmic ambiguity, to say nothing of that sine qua non of all Viennese composers, the waltz, which in the case of this concerto is a rustic peasant waltz, or Lindler, as they call it in Austria. Listen to a minute or so of this scherzo section of the concerto as uh, played on records by Henrik Schering, Schering with Raphael Kubelik conducting, and compare this waltz music with the little Opus 23 waltz of Schoenberg. No, strike that. Don't compare it with anything. Just enjoy it for its mellifluous, tender, wienerishness. Listen to the horn. That's the place. Completely tonal lender.
All done with thirds. Fantastic. So delicious. It's practically a Zachertochter mit Schlag. Viennese whipped cream. And it's strict, repeat, strict 12 tone writing. Only it exists somehow in a tonal universe where it's accessible to us in all its warmth and charm. Did you notice how tonally that movement ended? And that unmistakably tonic final chord is nothing but the first four notes of Berg's tone row. A lovely pile up of sweet thirds. And so the crucial ambiguity of tonality versus non-tonality manages to create a thoroughly positive aesthetic surface. That's one way of doing it. There are millions of ways. That's one. And needless to say, the violin concerto is not all sweetness and schlagobers, anything but. It has stretches of almost unbearable intensity, and dramatic brilliance, and Olympian calm. It is, in a very real sense, a tragic work. I didn't mean to get this deeply involved in it. After all, we were really talking about Schoenberg. But I would dearly love to share with you just one other moment of the piece, which presents the tonal-atonal ambiguity in a particularly positive way. This section is the closing adagio of the concerto and is chiefly concerned with developing the tail end of the tone row, which, as you remember, consists of these four notes spanning the tritone, the diabolus in musica, remember, the devil? But far from being the devil here, it is on the contrary, angelicism itself, because as it turns out, these four notes happen to be identical with the first phrase of Bach's chorale, Es ist genug, which you all know and love. Or don't you know it? It's one of the most extraordinary phrases, that first phrase alone, with its tritonic implications of both melody and bass line. And that's exactly the way Berg uses it, imagine. It comes at a point where there's just been a violent climax of shattering hammer blows. And as it is subsiding, we begin to hear emerging from the debris murmurings of that four note phrase intertwined with these hammer blows which are fading away and these four notes gradually become more and more distinct until suddenly the solo violin is playing the chorale itself 
and he plays all three phrases that I just played you from Bach before. Note for note. Now, of course, other things are going on at the same time. It's not just the violin playing the chorale, such as a counterpoint of those thirds from the first part of the tone row, right? and a cannon in the violas and other things that I won't bother you with. But then the most amazing thing happens, a totally unexpected event in a 12-tone work. That chorale is suddenly repeated by four clarinets imitating the sound of a baroque organ in pure B-flat major Bachian harmony. There are other little wrong notes hovering around in the background, but those four clarinets are absolutely pure. Those three whole phrases. And then the solo violin takes up the next phrase. Again with dissonant counterpoint. And again the clarinets repeat the phrase in the Bach version and so on to the end of the chorale. It's one of the most astonishing passages in all music, especially as it grows to its own dissonant climax, finally subsiding into an equally astonishing serene close in, guess what, B-flat major. I wish there were time to hear all that, but let's at least listen to the beginning of this section, starting from the preceding climax of Hammer Blows. Listen to the violas. Hear them? Now.
it's a sin to break into this celestial vision. But if this particularly demanding lecture is ever to achieve its point of illumination, it had better be soon. But in what way, I've been asking myself, can I shed further light on the massive problems of this ultimate ambiguity? Is it enough to have examined its origins, to have identified the great tonal split, to have traced one side of the split into the development of a great method that changed the history of music, to have attempted a dispassionate assessment of Arnold Schoenberg, only to have Alban Berg walk off with all the honors? No, there is further light to be shed, and that light is to be found in the mind and in the prophetic soul of Gustav Mahler. Why Mahler? What has Mahler to do with Schoenberg? A great deal, and far beyond the obvious fact that he supported and encouraged his young colleague Schoenberg during those early years of the century. After this brief pause, we're going to hear Mahler, and in particular, his last will and testament, the final adagio of his ninth symphony. And I think that after Mahler's ninth, things may be suddenly clearer, and we may have a new perspective. Think about that for a few minutes over your low-calorie cigarette. And think about that for a minute or two. <laughs> If you really have been thinking during this break, you will surely have some sharp questions in mind. First of all, why is Mahler's Ninth Symphony his last will and testament? What about the Tenth, that highly significant, unfinished document? And then, why play the Mahler Ninth to end a lecture on the 20th century crisis? Isn't this backtracking? having moved with Berg and Schoenberg into the mid-century, why now retrogress to that fateful year of 1908? Because, like the Ives' unanswered question, which was written in the same year, this ninth Mahler is also a great question, but it's more. It contains a deeply revealing answer. I had planned to prepare you for this music with my customary analysis at the piano, going in depth into the dualisms that tore Mahler apart, composer, conductor, Christian, Jew, sophisticate, naive, provincial, cosmopolitan, and all the rest, all of which resulted in the musical schizodynamics of his textures and his ambivalent tonal attitudes. I had also hoped, by a detailed analysis of his treatment of appoggiaturas, for example, to reach the essence of the tonal crisis through examining his non-resolution of tensions, his reluctant attempts to let go of tonality, all of which does shed further light on the inevitable split with, that was to occur between Schoenberg and Stravinsky. And so I picked up the score again after some years away from it, filled with the sense of Mahler's torture at knowing he was the end of the line, 
the last point in the great symphonic arc that began with Haydn and Mozart, finished with him. And I was again aware that it was his destiny to sum up the whole story of Austro-Germanic music, to recapitulate it and tie it up, not in a pretty bow by any means, but in a fearful knot made out of his own nerves and sinews. But while restudying this work, especially the final movement, I found more answers than I'd expected, as we always do when we return to the study of a great work. And the most startling answer, the most important one, because it illuminates our whole century from then to now, is this, that ours is the century of death and Mahler is its musical prophet. I want to talk to you about that answer without the piano, without visual aids, and on a somewhat different level of discourse from the one we've been following, because this Ninth Symphony offers us a great semantic expansion, an infinitely broader interpretation of what we've been calling the 20th century crisis. Why is our century so uniquely death-ridden? Couldn't we say this of other centuries as well? What of the 19th century, so poetically preoccupied with death, whether as late as Wagner's Liebestod or as early as Keats' Nightingale? I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme. Yes, true, poetically, symbolically true. And haven't all centuries, all human histories, been a long record of the struggle to survive, to deal with the problem of mortality? Again, yes. But never before has mankind been confronted by the problem of surviving global death, total death, the extinction of the whole race. And Mahler was not alone in his vision. There have been other great prophets of our struggle, Freud, Einstein, and Marx have also prophesied, as have Spengler and Wittgenstein, even Malthus and Rachel Carson, all latter-day Isaiahs and St. John's, all preaching the same sermon in different terms, mend your ways, the apocalypse is at hand. Rilke said it too, du musst dein Leben ändern. The 20th century has been a badly written drama from the very beginning, the opposite of a Greek drama. Act one, greed and hypocrisy leading to a genocidal world war, then post-war injustice and hysteria, a boom, a crash, totalitarianism. Act two, greed and hypocrisy leading to a genocidal world war, Post-war injustice and hysteria, boom, crash, totalitarianism. Act three, greed and hysteria. I don't dare continue. And what have been the antidotes? Logical positivism, existentialism, galloping technology, the flight into outer space, the doubting of reality, and overall a well-bred paranoia most recently on display in the high places of Washington, D.C. And our personal antidotes, 
making it dope, subcultures and countercultures, turning on, turning off, marking time and making money, and a rash of new religious movements from guruism to Billy Grahamism, and a rash of new art movements from concrete poetry to the silences of John Cage. A thaw here, a purge there, and all under the same aegis, the angel of planetary death. What do you do if you know all this back in 1908, if you're a hypersensitive like Mahler, and instinctively know what's coming? You prophesy, and others pick up your trail. In one way or another, Mahler lies at the essential core of all the significant music written after him, whether tonal or non-tonal. Even such diverse composers as Varese and Dalla Piccola are inconceivable without Mahler. Shostakovich and Britten are at their greatest when they are most like Mahler. And so both Schoenberg and Stravinsky, Mahler's two continuing prophets, utterly different as they are, spent their lives both struggling in their opposite ways to keep musical progress alive to avert the evil day. In fact, all the truly great works of our century have been born of despair or of protest or of a refuge from both, but anguish informs them all. Think of Sartre's Nozay, Camus' Stranger, Gide's Counterfeiters. The Sun Also Rises, The Magic Mountain and Dr. Faustus, The Last of the Just, even Lolita, and Picasso's Guernica, and Kiriko, Dali, and Eliot's Cocktail Party, Murder in the Cathedral, The Four Quartets, and Auden's Age of Anxiety, and that supreme work of his for the time being, and Pasternak, and Neruda, and Sylvia Plath, and on the screen, La Dolce Vita, and on the stage, Waiting for Godot, and Wozzeck, Lulu, Moses and Aaron, and Brecht's Mother Courage, and yes, also Eleanor Rigby, and A Day in the Life, and She's Leaving Home. These two are great works, born of despair, touched with death, and Mahler foresaw it all. That's why he so desperately resisted entering this 20th century, the age of death, of the end of faith. And the bitter irony was that he did succeed in avoiding the century only by himself dying prematurely in 1911. It's very strange how the pieces of the puzzle interlock. Mahler and his message pervade everything he touches. Think of Kindertotenlieder, the death of Rückert's children, and then of Mahler's own. And Alban Berg, who adored Mahler, dedicated his Wozzeck to Mahler's widow, Alma, and his violin concerto to the memory of her beautiful young daughter, Manon Gropius. It's all tied in with death. For instance, this concerto, we heard, was Berg's last work. He died the same year, aged 50, exactly the same age at which Mahler had died. 
The coincidences multiply, but let's not be tempted into psychic mysticism. The facts are potent enough. When Berg, as a young man, happened to hear a performance of the Mahler Ninth, he immediately wrote his wife back in Vienna that he had just heard the greatest music of his life, or some words to that effect. I feel these connections very strongly and personally. A few years ago, when I was first reintroducing Mahler's music to his own city of Vienna, where, of course, it had been banned for years by the Nazis, there was Frau Berg, the radiantly beautiful aged widow, sitting in rapture at every rehearsal. We became acquainted, and she became my living link back to the death-ridden intercrossing of Berg, Schoenberg, and Mahler, as did Alma Mahler herself, who attended my Mahler festival rehearsals in New York. I now began to feel myself in direct contact with Mahler's message. Today we know what that message was, and it was the Ninth Symphony that spread the news. But it was bad news, and the world did not care to hear it. That's the real reason for the 50 years of neglect that Mahler's music suffered after his death. Not the usual excuses we always hear, that the music's too long, too difficult, too bombastic. It was simply too true, telling something too dreadful to hear. What exactly was this news? What was it that Mahler saw? Three kinds of death. First, his own imminent death, of which he was intensely aware. The opening bars of this Ninth Symphony are actually an imitation of the arrhythmia of his failing heartbeat. And second, he saw the death of tonality, which for him meant the death of music itself, music as he knew it and loved it. All his last pieces are kinds of farewells to music, as well as to life. Think only of Das Lied von der Erde with its final Abschied. And that controversial, unfinished Tenth Symphony, even that one, which tried to take a tentative step into the Schoenbergian future, and which has undergone so many attempts at completion, even that Tenth remains for me basically the one completed movement, which is yet another heartbreaking adagio saying farewell. But it was one farewell too many. I'm convinced that Mahler could never have finished the whole symphony, even if he had lived. He had said it all in the ninth. And third, his third and most important vision was the death of society, of our Faustian culture. Now, if Mahler knew this, and his message is so clear, how do we, knowing it too, manage to survive? Why are we still here, struggling to go on? We are now face to face with the truly ultimate ambiguity, which is the human spirit. This is the most fascinating ambiguity of all, that as each of us grows up, the mark of our maturity is that we learn to accept our mortality, and yet we persist in our search for immortality. We may believe it's all transient, even that it's all over, yet we believe a future. We believe. We emerge from a cinema after three hours of the most abject degeneracy in a film such as La Dolce Vita, 
and we emerge on wings from the sheer creativity of it, we can fly on to a future. And the same is true after witnessing the hopelessness of Godot in the theater or after the aggressive violence of the Rite of Spring in the concert hall, or even after listening to the bittersweet young cynicism of an album called Revolver. We have wings to fly on. We have to believe in that kind of creativity. I know I do. If I didn't, why would I be bothering to give these lectures? Certainly not to sit here and make a public announcement of the apocalypse. There must be something in us and in me that makes me want to continue. And to teach is to believe in continuing, to share with you critical feelings about the past, to try to describe and assess the present. All that implies a firm belief in a future. I hope that answers the earlier question of why I'm ending with Mahler, a lecture that has been mainly on Schoenberg. Because Schoenberg is one of the great examples of the human spirit in our century. That spirit which is, after all, our only hope. He's a prototype of ambiguous man, compulsively engineering his own destruction and simultaneously flying on into the future. We'll find the same true of Stravinsky in our next and final lecture. And all of this ultimate ambiguity is to be heard in the finale of Mahler's Ninth, which is a sonic presentation of death itself and which paradoxically reanimates us every time we hear it. As you listen to this finale, try to be aware of what has just preceded it, three other gigantic movements, each one a farewell of its own. The first movement in itself has been like a great novel, a tortured saga of tenderness and terror, of tortured counterpoint and harmonic resignation. It's been a farewell to love, to D major, a farewell to the tonic. And in the second movement, a scherzo, which is a sort of super lendler, we've experienced a farewell to the world of nature. It's been a bitter reimagining of simplicity, naivete, the earth pleasures we recall from adolescence. And then the third movement, again a kind of scherzo, but this time grotesque, a farewell to the world of action, the urban cosmopolitan life, the cocktail party, the marketplace, the raucous careers and careenings of success, of loud and hollow laughter. And all three of these movements have been trembling on a tonal precipice on the edge of death. And only then comes the fourth and last movement, the adagio, the final farewell. And it takes the form of a prayer, Mahler's last chorale his closing hymn, so to speak, a super prayer for the restoration of life, of tonality, of faith. This is tonality unashamed, presented in all its aspects, ranging from the diatonic simplicity of the hymn tune that opens it through every possible chromatic ambiguity. It's also a passionate prayer, moving from one climax to another climax, each more searing than the last but there are no solutions. And between these surges of prayer, 
there is intermittently a sudden coolness, a wide-spaced transparency like an icy burning, a zen-like immobility of pure meditation. This is a whole other world of prayer, of quiet acceptance. But again, there are no solutions. Then, heftig ausbrechend, he writes. Again, the despairing breaking out of the chorale with greatly magnified intensity. This is Mahler, the dual one, back to his Western prayer, and then suddenly again freezing into his Eastern one. This vacillation is his final duality. In the last return of the hymn, he is close to prostration. It's all he can give in prayer, a sobbing, sacrificial last try. And suddenly, that climax fails, unachieved. The one that might have worked, the one that might have brought solutions. This last desperate reach falls short of its goal, subsides into a hint of resignation, and then another hint, then into resignation itself. And so we come to the final incredible page. And this page, I think, is the closest we have ever come in any work of art to experiencing the very act of dying, of giving it all up. The slowness of this page is terrifying. Adagissimo, he writes, the slowest possible musical direction. And if that weren't enough, he then writes langsam, slow, ersterbend, dying away, zögernd, holding back, hesitating. And as if those weren't enough to indicate the near stoppage of time, he adds äußerst langsam, extremely slow, in the very last bars. It is terrifying and paralyzing as the strands of sound disintegrate. We hold on to them, hovering between hope and submission. And one by one, these spidery strands connecting us to life melt away, vanish from our fingers even as we hold them. We cling to them as they dematerialize. We're holding two, and then one, one and suddenly none. For a petrifying moment, there is only silence. And then again, a strand, a broken strand, two strands, one, none. We are half in love with easeful death. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. And in ceasing, we lose it all, and in Mahler's ceasing, we have gained everything.